الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله اولا واخرا الحمد لله في الاولى وفي الاخره الحمد لله نستعينه ونعبده ونتوكل عليه واشهد ان لا اله الا الله لا شريك له لا شبيه له لا مثيل له لا وليد له هو اهل التقوى واهل المغفره واشهد ان سيدنا وهادينا محمدا صلى الله عليه واله وسلم عبده ورسوله وصفيه وخليله وما كان الله ليعذبهم وانت فيهم وما كان الله معذبهم وهم يستغفرون من يطع الله ورسوله واولي الامر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله واولي الامر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يستغفر الله يجد الله غفورا رحيما ومن يستنصر الله يجد الله قويا عزيزا اما بعد dear committed muslims brothers and sisters i know this territory has been covered before but the developments and the nature of the current affairs that we are living force us to revisit this issue again in light of today's ups and downs and ins and outs in the world of politics in the world of psychology in the military in the world of military movements and economic schemes Let us begin with the ayah or the ayahs ayat in surah ali imran that say ya ayyuhalladhina amanu taqullaha haqqa tuqatih wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun وَاعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا وَاذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانًا وكنتم على شفا حفره من النار فانقذكم منها كذلك يبين الله لكم اياته لعلكم تهتدون now these ayat as you have listened to them many times before you have read them numerous times 
you have come across them in many fashions, in many ways, on different occasions. And the force of habit has the effect of wearing off these meanings. We are supposed to read the Qur'an when we read it as if we are reading it for the first time. The meanings are fresh. They are vibrant. They are relevant. They are meaningful. So when all of these ayat are simple, they can be abbreviated in a sentence or two. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us to be together. And he's reminding us how we were divided. And he, regardless of those divisions, and in spite of that history, he brought us together. Another ayah in the Quran says, لَوْ أَنْفَقْتَ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا مَا أَلَّفْتَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِهِمْ If you were to spend everything in this world, you would not be able to reconcile their hearts. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Prophet in many hadiths that you've heard before, Al-Mu'minu Akhul Mu'min, in one hadith, Al-Mu'min lil Mu'min kal bunyan. Yashuddu ba'duhu ba'da Etc, etc The ayat Are instructing us to be together The Prophet is teaching us How to be together And with this theoretical knowledge We look, open our eyes and look at ourselves and we realize we're not together. Something has to be remedied if this is the case. The ayah 17 in Surah Al-Jathiyah says, فَمَا اخْتَلَفُوا إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتُ بَغْيًا بَيْنَهُمْ They did not disagree with each other except after multiple clear evidence came to them as a matter of aggression among themselves. Baghyam Bainahum. Baghi, aggression, is the last step in a process of defamation, ignorance, misunderstanding, the ego. Hatred, hostility, and then we have aggression. Ayah number 14 in Surah Ashura reinforces this meaning. وَمَا تَفَرَّقُوا إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَهُمُ الْعِلْمُ بَغْيًا بَيْنَهُمْ They were not divided except after knowledge had come to them and that division was a matter of aggression among themselves. What leads to this aggression? Why should Muslims be killing Muslims? And before that, why should Muslims be divided among themselves? Why are we acting 
like previous prophetic generations from whom we are supposed to learn. This Quran captured the weakness, captured the negativity of those who were before us, and it's in an eternal record. Just have if we just give it a little effort, open the book of Allah, open our hearts and minds, we will realize why this division has taken its toll upon us. We have in today's world, mention was made in the previous khutbah that our scholars are incapable of rising to the occasion. They show a failure in speaking truth to power and expressing justice where it is needed. When we say this, we don't say it because we have something against our ulama. We don't say it because there's an ego behind the expression. We say it simply because we are trying to diagnose our ailment. We are simply trying to state an objective fact. Now, one of the main fault lines that we have as a matter of dividing the Muslims is the issue of Sunni and Shi'i. Can anyone now deny that this has become a divisive issue among the Muslims? And preparations were done for this heightened sense of polarization between Sunnis on one side and Shi'is on another side which would make the meaning of the ayah that both Sunnis and Shi'is read and recite وَاَتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا You hold all of you together to the means of Allah and you are not to be divided and do not separate yourselves from each other. It's a fact. The ayah is a fact. Looking at life around us is another fact. And we have to be caught. We have to be aware of these facts. We can't read the Quran and say we don't live in the real world. The Qur'an does not communicate with the real world. You can't do that. On the other hand, you cannot be engrossed in the real world and disconnected from the meanings that come to you from Allah and His Prophet. You can't do that. So what do we have today? To paraphrase ourselves from previous times. We have this major division. It's really not supposed to be a division. But it, it is worked up. It's worked out to be a division. And many Muslims have fallen into this trap. And it's in a way simple to diagnose it by saying that Sunnis are stuck in an Umawi definition of what it means to be a Sunni and Shi'is are stuck in a Safawi definition of what it means to be a Shi'i. That's where we are. 
being that this is the observation, how many of you can point your hand at our Islamic scholars from these two traditions and say we have Sunni scholars who are cleaning their own house of Umawi pollution. How many scholars do we have in the Shi'i context who are cleaning their own house from Safawi pollution? How many do we have? In, this, in the Sunni context, the deterioration has reached rock bottom to such an extent that the word Ahl as Sunnah wal Jama'ah, if we can liberate ourselves from the calcification of traditions. Ahl as Sunnah wal Jama'ah, in practical terms today, this is what it means. The Sunnah that is defined by Saudi Arabia and the Jama'ah that belongs to Israel. Saying this is contributing to cleaning up our mess. If you've realized in the past few years this burst onto the scene of what is called ISIS or ISIL or Daesh or Jabhat this and Ahrar that and all of these ever increasing divisions have you realized that much of the jargon in the mainstream media much of the jargon has to do with the word khilafa the khilafa of this person in Afghanistan the khilafa of the other person in Iraq the khilafa of the third person in Syria and on and on and on it seems without an end here and each one of these is a manifestation of a breakaway group instead of Muslims coming together Muslims are running away from each other and then coming back to kill each other. This is what's happening. Any speaker who ascends the minbar at this time on Jumu'ah from the minbar and does not have the heart and the mind together to approach these issues is failing in his duties just yesterday or the day before yesterday this ISIS CIA Mossad Arabian intelligence agency all of them in combination with, with each other brought us this problem called ISIS they passed a law. I don't know how they do that. Anyways, they say they passed a law. And anyone who says, who mentions that their Baghdadi Khalifa is dead is going to be lashed 50 lashes. Where did they get this from? But back to this development in the past few years, this assault on the Muslims who come from the Sunni history. Many of these who come from that history now are not capable of using the word Khilafah. It's been muddied and tarnished and obscured and assaulted from every direction that now 
No one dares. And I'm speaking about the ulama here, not speaking about the average person. No one dares to go public with the word, which indicates there has been a gap in this 14 centuries of history through which these troublemakers now are capable of scoring this type of psychological blow to those who have been calcified in that history. On the other hand, we know, or we should know, that all of these efforts on the way to their final objective is to get at an Islamic governance, an Islamic willpower, an Islamic self-determination in Iran. That's the final objective. That's the final target. But have you realized in, in these people, these intelligence services, and their governments, and their corporations, and their militaries, and their propaganda, have you realized that they have not been able to tarnish the word imamat? It's not that they're not working on it. They've been working on it. And they've been trying to destroy it from within. Just like they're doing with Daesh and ISIS and all of this. Trying to destroy Islamic self-determination from within in a particular historical context. They've been working through parts of Iraq and Iran to destroy the practical meanings of imamat as has been produced by Walayat al-Faqih. They've been trying to do this, but it hasn't worked. You don't find a Muslim who is ashamed of using the word imam or imamat throughout all of these years. Why? Can someone just outgrow their frigid past and begin to breathe the realities of life to see what is happening and speak to these issues? To understand why we cannot get along? يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون واعتصموا بحبل الله جميعا ولا تفرقوا واذكروا نعمة الله عليكم إذ كنتم أعداء see the ayah here you were enemies that means even if we are enemies, we are capable of overcoming that history. إِذْ كُنْتُمْ It is possible to reconcile our hearts together. فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانًا وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَىٰ شَفَىٰ حُفْرَةٍ مِّنَ النَّارِ You're standing on the abyss of the fire. You're on a cliff. It's a cliffhanger. And you're going to fall into the fire. وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَىٰ شَفَىٰ حُفْرَةٍ مِّنَ النَّارِ فَأَنْقَذَكُمْ مِّنْهَا And Allah saved you from that slippery position. أقول قولي هذا استغفر الله لي ولكم ادعوه سبحانه وانتم على يقين بالاجابه وتوبوا الى الله ان الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters أيها المؤمنون 
this division and these negative feelings that are going from neighborhood to neighborhood, from land to land, from continent to continent. And believe me, if there was transportation between planets and planets, this negativity would be traveling between planets and planets. And we don't have up until now a significant amount of courage and insight to put our fingers on the problem, on the pulse. Right now, the major issue that has become a point of contention, and it's all over the place, is this issue between Qatar on one hand and Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain on the other hand. Now both of these now have their types of growing alliances. But this is the core of the issue. They hate each other. These are all Muslims. They all pray like we pray. They read the Quran like we read the Quran. They go to the Hajj like we go to the Hajj. They do everything that we are doing, but they hate each other. Can we... This information that comes to you from this minbar is not available in the mainstream media. Why? Because the mainstream media doesn't want us, doesn't want the public to penetrate to the core of the problem. Let us try with our God-given minds and our God-endowed revelation, scripture, and prophet. Let us try to get to the bottom of this issue, which will have us visit recent history. At the beginning of the 1970s, I'm saying this because we want to understand why we hate each other. Not you and me, obviously, and probably not the majority of those listening to the khutbah, but those who are involved in fueling the flames of sectarianism and preparing for future wars. We can trace this polarization to the beginning of the 1970s when certain oil producing nation states they began to nationalize their oil fields leading the charge in this direction was Algeria at the time among other non-monarchies and at that time, in the Saudi royal family, there were those who thought this was a brilliant idea. Why should these oil fields belong to someone else? They should belong to us. But how to deal with that when you have Britain at the time, the British, the United States, some other European countries, when they were the masters. If you disobey your master, you're gone. So now you live in a conf Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is out of the equation. When Allah says, They don't know what that means. There's no political behavior. There's no psychological fact that demonstrates their taqwa. That's absent. So they're dealing here with worldly powers. They want to nationalize their oil fields, but their masters will not permit it. At the beginning of 1972, the British left. They, they use the word withdrew. The British left the Persian Gulf. So the area that was under British control which is the western part of the Arabian, the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula, there was 
an idea of formulating these were called mashiachat shaykh turfdoms there was the idea of bringing them all together and they did bring all of them together you have Abu Dhabi, you have Dubai, you have uh, Al-Shariqa, Umm Al-Qwayt, etc. They brought all of them together except there was one that didn't join them. That was Qatar. Qatar was supposed to be part of what was to be called the United Arab Emirates. When the British left, those who have relative power in the area which were not these simpleton nomads those who had relative power in the area were three nation states iran iraq and saudi arabia and this is an area if this area didn't have any natural resources in it no one would be concerned with it it wouldn't have generated any hatred but because it's an area that is rich in its natural resources, these people who had power, the Shah of Iran, the King of Saudi Arabia, and the President in Iraq, they were looking at this area. They had their own plans. Saudi Arabia wanted Qatar. The Shah wanted Bahrain. Iraq wanted Kuwait for beginners. They wanted more. But their concentration were on these three nation states. So to solve this whole issue, the, what is called the United Arab Emirates came into existence. So Bahrain became part of the Gulf, later on the Gulf Cooperation Council. Qatar became part of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Saudi Arabia, etc., etc. And they thought that they were on their way now without any tension among them. But what was left out of the United Arab Emirates was Qatar. And Saudi Arabia had its eyes on Qatar simply because Qatar is by land linked to Saudi Arabia. And so there was now a competition behind the scenes. None of this is played out in the public. Behind the scenes, there was a subliminal competition between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates concerning Qatar. And I said, they're interested in Qatar because it has a lot of petroleum and has a lot of gas. The Saudis... In their argument said, the English, the British did this to us. Qatar to begin with is part of Saudi Arabia. But just like the colonialists, when they leave their colonized lands, they draw boundaries with frictions to them. They did this with Algeria and Morocco. They did this with Syria and Turkey. They did this with uh, Egypt and Sudan, they, and they, they, that's, how they, that's how they work. The issue of Qatar, to begin with, was an issue of who's going to control this very rich piece of geography. And the Qataris themselves, they knew, they're not dumb. When you want to survive, all of your eyes and ears are opened. I said, okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna guarantee our independence? Knock knock in Washington, and eventually an American military base takes foot, takes hold in Qatar, Al Udaid. So to begin with. This American military base in Qatar was not against Iran, it was against Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia was the one who wanted Qatar. And from here on, Qatar began to take on 
to go in a direction of independence. So it had, quote unquote, normal relations with the U.S. It had normal relations with Iran. At times when this was not comfortable to the Saudi officials. The Saudis and the Emiratis are paying close attention to what the Qataris are doing and they've been feeling disturbed but you didn't sense that in the media you didn't we didn't live this their differences were behind the scenes they were clandestine disagreements and then President Trump goes to Saudi Arabia we want to know why Muslims begin to hate each other. We are elevating the meanings of these ayat to the offices of the decision makers who impact through their instruments of power and wealth, public opinion, and it comes down to us. The average Muslim going to a Sunni masjid, the average Muslim going to a Shia masjid, and none of them are bringing them up to par with the developments of their time. So here comes Trump to the White House, and like he said in his campaigns, when he was running for president, he said, why should we be paying all of this money to defend these people all around the world? So he figured, businessman, he does his business calculations, that's it. He figured this is costing us. The defense of Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, all of this thing is costing us money. We're not making any profit, any significant profit out of it. So basically what he did was, after he secured from the Saudis the $600 billion revenue buying weapons, investing in the U.S. economy, etc., all of this stuff. He said, okay, you, we, I know you have your problems. United Arab Emirates, Saudi, you have your problems with Qatar. I have nothing to do with it. Does that remind you of something? During Bush, the father's time, The American ambassador to Baghdad, to Iraq, Gillespie, when Saddam Hussein had his eyes on Kuwait, he said, well, I don't know, I have nothing to do with that. This is an internal Arab affair. U.S. has nothing to do with it. And we know what happened after that. It seems like the scenario is just repeating itself. The U.S. is telling the Saudis, oh, you, got, you have your internal disputes, Arabian countries, peoples, you solve it among yourself. And because this information is withdrawn from the Muslim public, now you can understand why this type of khutbah is given in the street and not given in the masjid, in any masjid, a Sunni masjid or a Shia masjid. So now the trick is on the Saudis. Saudis cannot see that they are being played with the same way the powers, the superpowers, as we said, the taqwa of Allah is absent. It taqwa Allah, no. It taqwa America, yes. It taqwa Israel, yes. It taqwa the superpowers, yes. It taqwa Allah, no. So when you have actors and decision makers like that, what do you expect? They're being set up. And little do they know that they are being set up. Just like I told Saddam Hussein, oh well, you can have Kuwait as far as we're concerned. If you beat them, you have it. But it didn't go that way. And this is probably what they're telling the Saudis. If you beat the Qataris, you have it. We have nothing to do with it. Other things are being planned. How did the Saudis fall into this trap? Before, in the months before this, remember this JASTA, the courts here, <coughs> made it legal for the victims of 9-11 to sue the Saudi government for money, for damages, for 
So, when the Saudis were saying, okay, you want money, we're going to give you money. Forget about getting it through the courts. We'll get, instead of going through the justice, instead of our money going to the American Justice Department, our money will go to the American Pentagon. And they, as light-minded as they are, they can do their simple math. Gaddafi, who was accused of being behind the Lockerbie incident, 200 people died in Lockerbie or so. And he had to dish out $4 billion for 200 individuals. If you tally up the victims of 9-11, you're talking about between 3,000 and 3,500. How many billions of dollars are the Saudis going to have to pay through court? And you would think this would bring Muslims closer to each other. If the Saudis are, when the, this is what happens when there's no taqwa. The absence of Allah from their decision making, Allah has no power, Allah has no authority. He doesn't, he only exists in the masjid. They go and they pray to him in the masjid, they leave the masjid, he doesn't exist. They said, well, Gaddafi paid $4 billion because he was accused of being behind the death of 200 individuals who fell with that Pan Am plane. Then well, how much are we going to pay? So let's, let's reach some type of agreement. And then the agreement was, let's gang up Saudi Arabia, Al Emirat, and those in their sphere against Qatar. The Qataris, instead of also feeling that we should come together as Muslims, no, they want to reinforce their position from the same Jahili perspective. So they tell the Turks, come, come to your military base here, reinforce it with thousands. Al-Udaid, the American base there, protected them for all of these years. Now they're looking for protection for the years to come. Instead of the Americans, they want a NATO member to come and protect them. If it's not the United States or if the U.S. is trying to play them off, then they want some type of insurance. And they go to the Turks. And they buy as a, a gesture of goodwill to the United States government. They buy F-15s worth $12 billion. All of this money in the hundreds of billions of dollars paid by the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Qataris. If they're, because of the absence of the taqwa of Allah, they don't care for the average Muslim, you and me and the other Muslim. We can go and fly kites as far as they are concerned. And so what, is it, what does it mean if they are speaking about Islamic brotherhood, Islamic solidarity, the organization of Islamic cooperation? The Muslim World League, all of these are, and others, they're supposed to bring Muslims together. So at the end of this charade, the joke, live with these issues in the coming years and you will find the final laugh is, on, is against the Saudis. And in the middle of all of this, where is the Egypt? Some of us are old enough to know that Egypt spoiled what was called the Baghdad Pact. In the days of Abdel Nasser, Egypt basically caused the Baghdad Pact to fail. Meaning there was no, there could not be any common purpose between Iran and Turkey and Saudi Arabia. They couldn't gel 
because of Abdul Nasir. Now, Abdul Nasir was not in the final definition of the word an Islamic oriented person. He's a person who was looking at anti-Zionism and anti-imperialism. But even this amount of integrity does not exist in those who have replaced Abdul Nasir in the Arab context. And then there's another issue. You know, people here, they don't go by scripture, they don't go by ideology, they don't go by principles, they go by money. Money is their new God or their renewable God. In 2009, the Emir of Qatar, Hamad, went to Damascus. At that time, he was buddy-buddy with the ruler in Damascus. He said, let's think about extending the gas pipeline from Qatar all the way through Syria onto Turkey and from there on to Europe. At that time, the ruler in Damascus, being on good terms with the Russians, did not want the gas interests of the Qataris to interfere with the gas interests of the Russians. Both of these are major, the two major exporters in addition to Iran. Number three, these are the three major exporters of gas in the world, Russia, Iran, and Qatar. So when that didn't play, take place, all of a sudden the Syrian civil war broke out. That still continues until this very day. Why? Because of gas, because, because of pipelines, because of money. That is the bottom line in their politics and in their strategies. We don't have a bottom line of taqwa in our policies and in our strategies. The uh, previous Minister of Intelligence, the ex-Minister of Intelligence in Saudi Arabia, he was ambassador here after Bandar for a couple of years. He shows up at the MKO, the Munafiqeen's yearly conference in Paris, and he says that Iran is the biggest exporter of terrorism and coups in the world. Look who's speaking. Look who's speaking. They are the ones who are financing and have been financing terrorism all around the world and they want to stick that stigma to an enemy now that they share with the Israelis. Now the Israelis and the Saudis are in the same seat when it comes to these types of politics. This is what happens. This is where when we speak about we're not speaking about a simple community effort. We are speaking about the hate that is generated in the highest offices of the world and that trickle down to our communities and our individuals. Anyone coming to you with expressions of sectarianism or nationalism or any other divisive idea has become part of the problem and not part of the solution. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'a وَأَرِنَا الْبَاطِلَ بَاطِلًا وَارْزُقْنَا اجْتِنَابَهُ وَلَا تَجْعَلْهُ مُلْتَبِسًا عَلَيْنَا وَاجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا إِنَّ سِيْنَا أَوْ أَخْطَأْنَا رَبَّنَا وَلَا تَحْمِلْ عَلَيْنَا إِصْرًا كَمَا حَمَلْتَهُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِنَا ربنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا على القوم الكافرين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وآل محمد 
وصل وسلم وبارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة